0: You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at English.cccto.org. Only one of uh, the wedding for my son and my daughter in law. And so this was taken about, what, three weeks ago? And uh, this is Gabriel and Jesse, and they got married on August 31st. And it was just an amazing day. It was such a happy day. And the reason why, for me, it was such a happy day, obviously, not just because of this being my son and the first wedding in our family, uh, but because he answered a prayer to God. And my desire and my prayers for all my children, and Carol and I prayed ever since they were young, is that God would be preparing them for their wife or for their husband, And that God would be working in the life of that little baby girl whenever Jesse was born. That God would already have been working in her life long before she ever met Gabriel. And one of the prayers that Carol and I pray for our children and for their future spouses is that they would be pure. That they would be pure. And that, that means that they would live a life that God wants them to live. That Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 8, and we studied that as we began this series in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are pure. And blessed are those who are pure in heart. And so the joy of this day was seeing the blessing of purity that now my son and my daughter-in-law are one and united in Christ. And there would be nothing that would be more disastrous to this happy day than if somehow their marriage were to fail. And yet we know that in the Bible... We see that there are many failed marriages. And the biggest failed marriage of all is what do you think? What do you think the biggest failed marriage is in the Bible? Hmm. I would say it was the marriage between God and his people. Between God and Israel. And even in many ways between God and his church, his bride where we have not remained pure to what God has called us to be. And that in this, God says that there is an adultery that happens. And it can be a physical adultery, as we saw in the book of Hosea, where God was using Hosea as a prophet to show what God's relationship with Israel was like, and Hosea was pure. Hosea was holy. Hosea was right. Hosea was loving. Hosea was gracious and merciful. But Gomer, his wife, was an adulteress, and she kept going back into adultery. And yet Hosea was told by God, keep loving her, keep wooing her, try to bring her back. And so we see this relationship between God and his people, and we see his relationship between you and me. And last week, we looked at one of the commandments of God, which was, thou shalt not murder, which is the sixth commandment and today jesus deals with the seventh commandment thou shalt not commit adultery and these are two of the greatest plagues of society throughout history violence and sex out of place but there is a sex that is in place and jesus is dealing with this topic today And so just like last week, when we looked at the passage, we saw that in this part of Matthew chapter 5, that Jesus has what we call an antithesis, an antithesis. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, we looked at this last week, and Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. So there was a thesis, and the thesis was the word of God, do not murder. But then there was a misinterpretation of that. By the Pharisees. And so Jesus corrected it with the antithesis. He gave them the right interpretation of the law. And we're going to see the same thing today with two more antitheses. One is you have heard that it was said do not commit adultery. And Jesus is going to talk about what that really means. And then he says it has been said anyone who divorces his wife dot dot dot. And then Jesus is going to correct what was teaching that was happening there today. And that day. And so we are going to continue and follow the same pattern that we did last week, which is the pattern Jesus uses throughout these passages. And that is that he will quote scripture, he will interpret scripture, and then he will probe behind the meaning of that scripture into the heart of God, into the mind of God, that we might understand what's the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. And then Jesus gives us the application. He reveals the true intent of how we are to live out this law that God has given to us. And so today we are going to be talking about purity and what purity means. Purity, of course, means doing the things that are right in the eyes of God, in the ways of God. And when it comes to sex, it means that God has standards for sex that are meant to be done and meant to be held with in the right way. When God made Adam and God made Eve, he made them so they were sexual beings so that they could be one. But there is a law and there is a purity that is supposed to happen. A a faithfulness that is supposed to happen between this man and this woman. An intimacy that is to be exclusively only between a man and a woman. And exclusively and only between a husband and a wife. And anything outside of that is wrong and sin. And in a broad way, this is called adultery. And so we are going to look at what Jesus says about adultery. And so again, it's the seventh commandment. We see it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. And it says, you shall not commit adultery. And so Jesus quotes it. And adultery is, as we have just said, it is sexual activity with anyone other than your spouse. It is having sexual relationships outside of marriage. The root word of adultery is the same word from which we get the word apostate. An apostate is somebody who renounces a belief that they once had. And so somebody who commits adultery is an apostate to their commitment to their spouse. Now, to the Pharisees, adultery was simply that act of doing it. The sexual act outside of marriage. But Jesus says, no, it's more than that. And so Jesus interprets it. And he says, what I want you to know is adultery is not just an act, which is what the Pharisees are teaching you, but rather it is a look with lust. Open up your Bibles with me, please, to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll turn to verse 28. Matthew 5, verse 28. And there it says, and these are Jesus' words, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus is saying, this is what lust is. Now notice, he is addressing men. Men are the culprits of this broken commandment that Jesus is addressing at this time it doesn't mean women can't do it but right now Jesus is addressing men and he says it's any man who looks at any woman in a lustful manner so what is lust lust is desiring that person that you're looking at in a sexual way it is using your imagination or your mind To continue to find some pleasure sexually by looking at that woman. Lust is outside of the realms of God's law. In Job chapter 31, verse 1, Job talks about lust and about how we can stay away from lust. Can you read this with me? Let's say it together. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. Okay, like, this is a good picture. Okay, can you do that? Everybody do that, all right? Now you can't see anything, right? Of course not, right? We can't see. When um, I always need glasses, and one time um, I was at a, uh, a water park, and I was a, a much younger man, and we were with some friends, and of course when you go around the water park, I can't wear my glasses at all. And so I was with uh, another couple, and I think Carol was there with us. And they said, oh, wow, you can't see very well, can you? Because, you know, it's like, you, don't have, you can't have your glasses. And I said, well, it's okay. Because around here, that's my lust control. Right? Because I can't see. Right? I, I, if I take off, I, 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 what's well, a guy and what's a girl? I mean, it's just like, I can't see beyond my nose. Um, so I said, well, that's lust control for me. Well, for Job, lust control was saying that I am not Going to look at any woman because I made a covenant with my eyes. Now, that's a really important word today, covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It is an oath that someone makes for the good of somebody else. It is a promise that I am going to do something good and right for you. The word covenant comes from the word meaning to cut, to cut. And so here we have a picture. It may be hard to figure it out, but what it is, is top right, that's Abraham. Okay? And in Genesis 15, 9 through 18, you could read about it there. But what it is, is that God goes and he says to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And what I want you to do is I want you to get five animals. Okay? Three of them are hoofed animals, and two of them are birds. And so what I want you to do is I want you to cut in half the three hoofed animals— and then I want you to put the birds, but don't cut them in half. I want you, after you slaughter them, just to put them on either side. And then you will walk and I will walk down the middle of them. And there'll be a covenant. And it, obviously there is blood in this covenant. And one way that, that scholars look at that and they say what was happening there was that God was saying that this is the price of our covenant the cost of life but for men when they make that covenant they are to do the same thing they are to walk down the middle between the blood of the shed animals and essentially what they would have been saying to each other is may this what happened to these animals happen to me if i don't keep my covenant with you may i be sold in two may i be shedding my blood And so this is a a very divine and sacred promise that God is making with Abraham. If you look at Genesis 15, 9, you'll see that God promised Abraham, I'm going to make this covenant with you. I want you to get the animals. And Abraham obeys, and he does what we see there. He he slices the hoofed animals in half. He puts the birds on either side. And then he falls asleep. God puts him into a deep sleep. And then what happens is God comes down. He comes down as a fire. And God walks between the animals. And God secures the covenant all on his own. Abraham didn't do anything except to believe in the covenant of God. And God took care of everything. It depended on God. And so what we are seeing here with Job is he is saying that I have made a covenant with my eyes and I'm telling my eyes, I'm the one, I'm walking through this with my eyes and I'm saying, eyes, I'm not going to betray you by looking lustfully at a woman. And it's a sacred promise that he makes before God even as he made it with his eyes. Now, Jesus goes on and he probes deeper. And so what he's saying to us is behind the law, Is our heart. That God is looking at our heart. That's what matters. It is our heart that matters. And so Job says again. If my steps have turned from the path. If my heart has been led by my eyes. Or if my hands have been defiled. If my heart, verse 9, has been enticed by a woman. Or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door. In other words, then I would have lusted. Then I would have sinned. And so Job is showing us. That our eyes and our hearts are united. And if I want to control my eyes, I must control my heart. And if I want my eyes to be doing what is right, my heart must do what is right too. And therefore, Jesus then reveals to us, how do we do this? What's the true intent and how am I and how are you supposed to follow this? And it is by discipline. Look in um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, and I'll read it. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. And Jesus says, therefore, if your right eye is a temptation, gouge it out. If your right hand is causing you to touch things you ought not touch, cut it off. In another passage, Jesus is talking in a similar manner. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 8. And he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So Jesus is telling us. If you got to do it, and your eye is causing you sin, cut out your right eye. If your right hand is causing you to sin, cut off your right hand. If your right foot or any foot is causing you to sin, amputate it. Now, before you go off and do something like that, Jesus is using what is called hyperbole or exaggeration. He's not advocating mutilation. He's not advocating amputation. But he's using a very strong word. He's using very strong language to tell us we must be disciplined because it is our discipline that's going to determine our direction. The word gouge means to tear it out. And so Jesus is saying there are things in our lives that we must tear out if we want to live the way God wants us to live. There are things in our life we must cut off. If we really want to live the way God wants us to live, if we want to enjoy the benefits of doing what is best, then there must be discipline. Now, if I was your sports coach and I said to you, you must cut off all sugar and all white flour and you must get up at 5 a.m. and run and lift weights, and eat only the foods I prescribe. You must cut off everything that will keep you from being slow, and everything that would keep you from being in the best shape of all. You would say, okay, I think I want another coach. Or you would say, you know what, that's true. If I'm going to be the best athlete that I can be, I'm going to have to cut off sugar, other carbs that aren't good for me, I'm going to have to eat the things that are good for me. I'm going to have to get up early. I'm going to have to cut off going to bed late. I'm going to have to get up and do what I need to do. I'm going to have to lift weights. I'm going to have to have discipline. Now, if I was your music teacher and I said to you, you're going to have to cut off video games. You're going to have to cut off television. You must get up early every morning, two hours before wherever you have to be. And for one hour, you have to do your scales. And for another hour, you have to practice. And then you must do it again two hours before you go to bedtime. You must cut off everything and anything during that time except to practice, practice, practice. And you would say, Mom, Dad, stop it. But your music teacher would say, Well, if you don't want that, then you won't be the best that you can be. If I was your academic tutor and I said to you, if you want to get into the best schools possible, you wanna get the best grades possible, and if for the right reasons you wanna learn so that you can serve the people you're gonna work for in the best way possible, then this is what you must do. You must cut off your cell phone. You cannot use your cell phone. You must cut off all socializing on social media. And you are not allowed to do that while you are in school. So that there will be no temptations. And you go, wow, that's kind of rough. But it would make sense, wouldn't it? To cut off these things as if we were gouging our eyes out from the things that would distract us from the things we want. Now, now, if I was your pastor, okay, wait a minute, I am your pastor, so I can say to you what God's word says. If you want to live the way Jesus wants you to live, you must cut out your right eye if your eyes cause you to sin. You must cut off your right hand if you touch anything that causes you to go astray, And you must cut off your foot or you must cut off your feet. If you are walking or going to any place that's causing you to sin. Now you can just think about what that applies to. We don't want to be legalistic and tell you exactly what it means. But you could probably get some good ideas on your own. Websites you shouldn't go to. Books you shouldn't read. Magazines you shouldn't own. Movies you shouldn't watch. Music with lyrics you shouldn't listen to. People you shouldn't hang out with. But you have to think about that. Here's Jesus saying, I want you to be serious. Because discipline determines our direction. And we go back to Jesus' theme here as an adultery. He's saying you must be pure in your commitment to God. First and foremost. And this purity will live out in not living a sexually promiscuous life. You will save sex for marriage and only marriage. You will save yourself and when you are married, you remain faithful to your spouse and only your spouse. And this will be purity. And that's Jesus' message about purity in this context to everybody. Adultery deals with everybody. But now, uh, Jesus is going to go into... A very difficult passage for us to understand completely. And he's going to talk about now purity in marriage. We've talked about purity outside of marriage. But now he's going to talk about purity in marriage. And what's important to understand is that this message, this part, is not intended for any one person here or any one couple here. This message is entitled for everybody, single and married, to know and to understand and I know that when we talk about divorce, it's a very sensitive issue. I know it's very, very hard. Some friends of mine right now who I officiated the wedding um, are dealing with that possibility. And friends are trying to help them through the difficulty of their marriage. And I understand that divorce is, is a very painful thing. But, but as I'm talking about this, I want you to hang in there. Don't make any judgments until the end. Because I think at the end you're going to have a better picture of Jesus' heart about what divorce means and, and why it's vital that we understand this and to know the truth. And, and yet Jesus understands, as, as we do, that there's probably no greater unhappiness in, in society or in civil life than an unhappy marriage. But as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves just really one question. One question. What does God in his word say? About this topic What does God in his word say About divorce And so again Jesus begins By quoting scripture but in this case It's really interesting Um, The Pharisees had not really Quoted scripture they had just simply interpreted And that's why Jesus says, You know you have heard that was said um, To give your wife uh, A certificate of divorce But there's no scripture that says You must give your wife a certificate of divorce And we're going to see that in just a little bit Okay. So Matthew five thirty one it has said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Um, but they were already on wrong ground by saying that. In Matthew nineteen, Jesus continues um, to teach more about, about marriage and about divorce. And so we see this here in Matthew nineteen three. And it says some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. And they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? For any and every reason. Okay, is it law- now that's not in the Bible any and every reason that's not in the old testament that's not a scripture but that's what the pharisees were teaching And we'll see why they were teaching that in just a little bit in matthew 19 just a few verses later matthew 19 7 through 9 it says why then okay and again these are the pharisees they asked did moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts are hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. We're going to look at the second half of that verse a little later. But the first part, verse 7, it says, notice that the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, well, you say that we can't have divorce, but then why did Moses command that a man gives his wife a certificate of divorce. That was the same thing as the must in the Matthew chapter 5. Why must we give him a certificate of divorce? Why must, there's the command. But there is no command to give a person a certificate of divorce. There's no must in this. Now, the Pharisees um, were in two camps, just like pretty much it's always same. Like they, they had Democrats and they had Republicans. Okay? They had the liberals and they had the conservatives. And and the liberals were part of a group that followed a rabbi named Hillel. And he was a liberal. And he was the one who was saying, you could divorce a woman for any reason at all. You can divorce her and give her a certificate of divorce because that's what Moses teaches. But then there was the conservative side. And this was a rabbi named Shammai. And Rabbi Shammai looked at these verses and he said, no, it is not for every and any reason at all that you can divorce your wife. It is only for something that is indecent within sexual promiscuities. It is something that is done sexually wrong. That is the unseemly part. That is the indecent part of the scriptures. So what is the scripture that they're talking about? It is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 through 4, So, Jesus now is interpreting by correcting false teaching that the Pharisees have been doing. So, would you read this passage with me? So, hopefully it'll be understandable, more understandable that way. Let's begin. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house... She becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again. So this is the passage that the Pharisees are referring to, both the liberals and the conservatives. But notice there's no command to do this. This is just an option. Remember, Jesus said there's an option there because of the hardness of your heart. There's an option there because some people can't accept the other parts of Scripture. And so Jesus gives us truth about what this is. and, And what this is saying is not that you can divorce a woman for any meaning at all. But rather, we have to look back and we understand, what is this passage teaching? In verse 1, it says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, then he can write her a certificate of divorce. Now, indecent doesn't include adultery, okay? Because if she committed adultery, the penalty for adultery wasn't divorce, it was death. That she was killed, or he was killed. The penalty for adultery was stoning. So, so we're not talking about adultery. It's something else that we're talking about here that's indecent. It still had to do probably with something sexual. But that it had been misinterpreted. And so those were saying that what indecent meant was just anything. And so it literally, those who were in the liberal camp said it would be, I, you know, my wife didn't cook breakfast right. She doesn't look good to me anymore. She doesn't take care of herself. She's, you know, she's falling apart. I don't like her anymore. I'm going to give her a certificate of divorce. Women were treated so poorly in that culture of that day. And they were so looked down upon. And this passage in Deuteronomy was raising up what was to be the expectation of men treating their wives with respect. Now there might be a reason, but it was greatly limiting divorce, this passage in verse 1. It was saying you cannot divorce a woman for any frivolous reason at all. In fact, you needed to have two witnesses to what you said she had done wrong before you could even get this certificate. Secondly, in verse 1, it says that this certificate then, if you do divorce her, it must be given to her so that she will be able to have proof that she was not an adulteress. That she had not done something so immoral or so wrong that somebody else wouldn't want her. Maybe the divorce rate says, I divorce her because she's just not a good cook. I divorce her because I don't like the way she looks. I divorce her because she doesn't please me anymore. But it would say what it was. And this was actually to protect her. This was so that she would be able to go back out more because she would have maybe no other means to take care of herself. And so she might have to get remarried again. And she could get remarried again if she had this certificate with her. But what this was teaching was that this certificate would show how hard it was to get. But also it would impress upon the community. This is a serious thing. You just don't divorce your wife because you want somebody else. You just don't treat marriage that way. This is important to our community. It's a serious thing. And you must not pursue this unless there is really adequate, true reason for it. And thirdly, it was protecting the woman by not letting her just be treated like a piece of property. Because it was saying, and that was probably what was being so bad about that culture in that day, men were just divorcing their wives for any reason. So it says that even if the second husband divorces her, then she can't go back to the first. And you're thinking, well, I'm thinking like, well, why would she? Right? You know, who would want to do that? But she's seen as a piece of property. Maybe the man thought, you know what? The second one I married wasn't as good as the first one. I want the first one back now that she's available. But the Bible says here, no, you can't do that. If you do, if you divorce her the first time, then you are no longer able to have her back. This is permanent. This is not something you can treat so frivolously. This is something that you must understand. It's hurting her. It's hurting your children, it's hurting your culture, it's hurting your society. And so even though under certain circumstances it was permitted, it was to be extremely limited. But when we come back to our passage here with Jesus, what we see is that when we look at Deuteronomy, the Pharisees had it all wrong. They were teaching falsely. And so Jesus has to probe, and he has to go deeper And he has to probe behind the meaning of the passages that we've read. And the meaning of what God wants for us in marriage. And so when we probe behind the law and we go into God's mind, we see that there is more to marriage than just a contract. There is a spiritual covenantal relationship and commitment. Look at verse 32 in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says there, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this is the part I think that's maybe the hardest part of all for interpretation. Because what it looks like Jesus is saying is that anyone who divorces a woman except for the acceptable reasons that we're going to look at in just a moment, then not only is that person, if he remarries, going to commit adultery, but he makes the woman commit adultery too. We're going to try to understand what is Jesus talking about? Why is this so vital for our understanding? Remember, when we look at Genesis, and we look at what God wants us to have, In marriage, he wants us to have a forever union. But when divorce happens, it breaks that forever union. It breaks the union that God sees as husband and wife being one. And even if the husband commits adultery himself, and the wife, even though she has the permission now by Jesus to go and to divorce him and to go and seek another husband, Jesus still would say, there's something else you can do. You can forgive that person. We've been talking about reconciliation. Last week, we talked about reconciliation with murder. We can reconcile to break the union back. Now, that would, of course, require that the one who committed adultery had a repentant heart. But what we see happening in that situation is that God's view is that when you get married husband and wife, you are one. There's nothing that can break that union in God's eyes except one of them committing adultery. But if they don't commit adultery and you divorce that person, God still sees you as one. So though you may divorce them, God still sees you this way. And therefore, if you go and you marry somebody else, then you, because God still sees you as one, are committing adultery and causing the one who you're in one with to commit adultery too. That's just the really basic logic. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us to understand it in this way, that same reason. He says the only reason for divorce is because of the breaking of the one flesh. Remember the one, the one flesh in marriage. Because the guilty party has broken the bond that united them together. The link has gone. And thus divorce is allowed. But it is not a commandment. But if you divorce your wife for any other reason, you are putting her away without breaking the bond, because God still sees you as one. In this way, you are making her break the bond if she should marry again, and she is therefore committing adultery. So that a man who divorces his wife for any reason but adultery is thereby cause for her, a cause of her to commit adultery. And that is the reason that God wants us to take this seriously. Is that he wants us to stay married, to grow in that oneness. He wants us to stay married so that we will learn that commitment that happens when a man and a woman get together. But he does allow for divorce in one circumstance. He does allow for divorce. He says, Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, which is marital unfaithfulness. So there is this exception. He repeats it in 19 verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And so sexual immorality is the same thing as adultery. It is doing that outside of marriage, having sexual relationships with somebody that you don't have a covenant commitment to in marriage. God treats marriage with the utmost of respect. And he wants us to as well. He wants us to have a high view of marriage. Now, In the Bible, there's at least one other reason and God uses the Apostle Paul. We don't have time to go in it, but if you want to look at it, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and then particularly verse 15. The Paul says that there is another reason that is allowable for divorce, and that is that if you have an unbelieving spouse and they want to get out of the marriage because you're a believer, and that was happening in the early days where the evangelism was happening and two unbelievers were hearing the gospel, and one heard the gospel, and one came to Jesus, and one wanted to be a follower of God and a follower of Jesus. The other one did on that person left. The Bible says, let him go. Let him go and you can have a divorce in that case. And there might be some other reasons that the Bible alludes to but doesn't particularly teach, um, such as abuse. Like, you know, it's, if, if somebody's being physically abused, that needs to be seriously dealt with. Husbands are supposed to treat their wives as the weaker vessel. They're supposed to treat them with respect and honor them as Christ teaches the church. Again, that's an illusion, not a teaching. And then um, quite possibly also, um, if somebody was divorced before they became a Christian, that might be another reason to allow for divorce. And then remarriage. Because once they became a Christian, the Bible says that all things are forgiven. That person becomes new. But again, those are um, just reasons that other people give. Um, things that we might think about, but not necessarily taught specifically by the Bible. But Jesus makes it really clear to us, specifically in the Bible, um, that we cannot divorce our spouse in God's eyes, except for marital or sexual unfaithfulness. Now we want to look at what is the real intent then? What is, what is Jesus really trying to teach us? And, and how are we to follow? So we have to go back to Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And can, um, can you read that together? Let's read it out loud. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one therefore what God has joined together let man not separate now we, we hear this quite often don't we what God has joined together let no man tear asunder and what that means is that there's this uni- unity. And, and the NIV says, be united to his wife. The King James Version says, to cleave to his wife. And cleaving means glue or cement. And that God wants us to know that when we become one flesh in marriage and we are cemented together through intimacy and through sex. And that God wants us to see that as a picture of how he sees our relationship as husband and wife, as a permanent relationship, as one flesh, as one spiritual commitment, as one person together, as husband and wife and God. And of course, this is what we say in our vows. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Till death do us part again a serious commandment of god but jesus is being extremely positive here because he's going back beyond the law of moses he's going back beyond what we read in deuteronomy and he's going back to genesis and he's saying that at the beginning this was always god the father the creator's plan he had made man in his image male and female he created them And he had said that it was not good for a man to be alone. And he said that when that man realizes and he finds the one to which he is to be a partner with for life, he will therefore leave his father and mother and be united and cleave with his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. There was the greatest joy of all the day of the wedding of my son because now there were no more two, but they were one. And on that day, they were rejoicing in their oneness. There was the happiest day of my life was the day of my wedding. And the most unhappy days of my life have been in my marriage. Let me say that again. The happiest day of my life was my wedding. But the most unhappy days of my my life have been in my marriage. We're not perfect. Carol and I have had a lot of fights in the past. We do really well now. We, We hardly ever fight. That's because she knows who's boss. She is. And she knows it, and now she's happy, and I finally learn. The the two words um, that keep marriages together, husbands, are, and to mean it, yes, dear. That works. God wants us to be committed to each other for life, but it's not easy. There are hard times, there are difficult times. And I can understand why some people do end up going through divorce. But the Bible says that this is not God's will for us. He wants us to stay together and enjoy the blessings of marriage. But then we have to ask the question I'm sure we're all asking, but what if? But what if somebody gets a divorce? And what if they get a divorce that wasn't because of the stated reasons of exception that Jesus or Paul gives to us. James Boyce, Bible teacher, commentator, and pastor, says this. It is also true that Christians who marry out of God's will and get divorced remarry often to Christians, and that God seems often in his great grace to sanctify and bless the remarriage. Does this mean that in this case God has changed his standards? Not at all. But it does mean that even divorce and remarriage, serious though they are, are not unforgivable. And that God is always able to start with his children precisely where they are and bring blessings. The church should never be closed to such people. And Christians, above all men, should show mercy. I know remarriages that are blessed. God's grace and his provisions are still there. I think Dr. Boyce says it so well. Is that, yes, we do want to remember God's grace, and this is something that we must continue to remember. It doesn't change God's rule. It doesn't change God's law. But God would have us to be forgiven and to be reconciled. Tony Evans, who's a pastor of a a large church in in Dallas, or in Texas, um, and a predominantly uh, African-American church, Uh, talks candidly about the reality that in his community there are many divorces and remarriage that happen within his community and he's had to struggle with the biblical teaching about that Uh, but one of the things that he says to couples who come to him um, who are in that remarriage he says but this one that you have now this is the one to live out the commitment that god has given to you to stay married and to be faithful and to live out the commandment of this one flesh that God has given to you now. And, and he struggles with it, but he has a heart of compassion. And so I want us just to see a short video of him who, who talks to us, and, and any of us who know somebody who maybe is, has gone through divorce and is still hurting, or somebody who, who is going through it now and is, is experiencing pain. Another way for us, just as Dr. Boyce talked about grace Here's another way that uh, Tony Evans talks about it. Oops. Can you play it for me? I won't work from my clicker. lo claro. Jesus had to deal with an adulterer. And in John chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, the Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in the act of adultery. And then they said, in the law of Moses, it is commanded us to stone such women. Now, at that time, they got it right. Because that is what the law of God says. And so then they said to Jesus, now, what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? So here we have a situation where Jesus is facing a woman, married or not, we don't know, but someone who's committed adultery, caught, guilty, deserving of death. And the Pharisees say, what are you going to do about that, Jesus? They put him in a bind, so they thought. But then we read the words of Jesus. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older one first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they now? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Those are the words to all of us wherever we are in regards to our singleness and sexual temptation and adultery. Receive the Lord's forgiveness if you have sinned, but go now and leave your life of sin. It is for all of us who are in marriages now to be committed And to not live a life of sin. To live in faithfulness to our spouse. To work through the problems and the trials that we will go through. And to seek help for that. Because Jesus is available for the grace that we need. And he will not condemn us. But he will tell us to go and to live. And to live without sin. But to live without sin is to live a life in joy. To live a life in hope, to live a life in strength, to live a life in community, to live a life in love, to live a life in healing, to live a life in reconciliation, to live a life in relationships that now are stronger because they've been tested. God wants us to be pure inside and out, and he wants us to be pure in and out of marriage, because he loves us, and he's made us for this. Let us pray.